Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Uh, with me, as always, is Dr. David Gushy. How's it going, David? It's good. How about you, my friend? Uh, doing good. Working on my fifth cup of coffee for the morning. Fifth so, cup of coffee. Blessed and highly caffeinated. Uh, been up for a while, got the kids to school, and uh, now we try to uh, gather the energy for the rest of the day. Um Last episode, we were talking about the Baptist tradition, its its history of democracy and its tools uh, for democracy. And about is a laboratory. I liked that a laboratory where we can practice democracy on a smaller but still important scale. This week, we're zooming in even tighter on the church world. Um, chapter thirteen is. The Black Christian Democratic Tradition in the United States. It's a lot of words in a straight line. Could you break down what all of that means? What are we talking about when we say that? So, again, the purpose of these last three chapters is to name uh, pro-democratic resources in history and tradition, right? And um, I argue in this chapter that that African-American... Christian um, folks in the U.S., when they have turned their attention, as they often have, to um, to building and defending real democracy, um, uh, ha- they've developed a profound pro-democratic tradition that is both American, um, it's American, it's resistant to white supremacy and white dominance and racism uh and it's deeply affected by the by the christian community uh, that um and the black church tradition that has been so important in the history of uh, african americans in the u.s so um you might say this is um this is a story about the blood sweat and tears of african american christian people who embraced the religious tradition of their oppressors here in the U.S., Christianity, uh, reconfigured it to be a tradition that could give life to them, formerly enslaved communities, um, enslaved and then formerly enslaved communities after the Civil War, and um, could could have their churches sometimes at least become... uh, engines of um democracy and of of democratic activism the the most visible example of this is the civil rights movement uh centered in black church uh communities led mainly by pastors um with ebenezer baptist church in atlanta being you know eventually the headquarters church once martin luther king moved back home um but um, but there's a long history of this. And so this chapter talks about, remember I said earlier, like the Baptists had a taste for democracy and for human rights and for freedom, freedom of conscience because they knew what it was like to have them denied. Same thing here, that African-American, African-American people in the U.S. have understood the flaws in our democracy better than anybody and have developed some of the most profound activism and arguments for real democracy that have been developed here in you know the entirety of our history so this is a chapter that's about that 
Uh, here's a quote from, I don't know if this is pulled straight out of the book. I've pulled this out of the, some of the companion resources that we've put together at, uh, when trying to break down this chapter into a series of bullet points, one of the bullets that you gave us was the black democratic tradition in the U S is one crucial resource to defend democracy in its centuries long struggle to tell the truth about the fatal damage of white supremacism to democracy and its fight for real democracy with full equality, civil rights and political participation. Can you give us, so I'm, what I'm excited about in this is that opening clause that the black democratic tradition has given us resources to defend American democracy. What am I as an outsider supposed to learn from this tradition? Um, well, young white Baptist in the South. Yeah. Well, among other things that, that our democracy that was born in 1776 and 1789 and was germinating in the colonial period was damaged by white supremacist, um, assumptions. And of course, by the institution of slavery, um, and so what was born, um, what was born in 1776 and 1789 was essentially a white democracy. It was a democracy by and for white people. Now it was, that was never, um, 100% the case There either were enfranchised black people, um, from the beginning especially in the north right um but but that our democracy was poisoned at its roots by racism and by slavery and by the assumption that the country and its democracy the people who you might say that the people who were making the covenant uh, of american democracy were white people and that the country was for white people um and so Native Americans and um, black people were kind of outside of the covenant. They were here as, um, you know, somebody to bulldoze on top of or to, or to enslave and dominate. Um, and so moving from the flawed but still profound a system that was created in 1776, the constitution and the, the structure of government and checks and balances and all that stuff we learn in government class. But the fact that a significant chunk of the human population here was left out and that the democracy could never be fully a real democracy until that was changed, that's what, one thing to learn from that, obviously. It also, I think, helps to explain some of our politics I would say the abolition struggle prior to the Civil War, the Reconstruction period, the Jim Crow period, civil rights movement, even unto today, the struggle to, to reform American democracy so that it really does belong to everybody here equally um, has never been completely won. It is an ongoing struggle. And 
whether explicitly or implicitly, there's lots and lots and lots of American folks, white Americans, who if you really scratch below the surface, they would essentially say, this is our country. And all these other people are allowed to be here as long as they understand who's in charge. Does that resonate with with you, Jeremy? The, both parts of it, both in the affirmative and the, the the negative truth that many act like this is or ought to be a white country. The I think what I have learned most deeply from studying the black church tradition in the United States, both academically and in real life is the importance of telling the truth yes, and the importance of hearing it, yeah. especially dangerous and difficult truths. So you mentioned Ebenezer a little earlier. They are still deeply involved in the political process, both in their city of Atlanta, but their senior pastors, Raphael Warnock, Reverend Senator, right. Reverend Senator, Dr. <laughs> what, what order do you, I always put Rev first. But do so is it Reverend Dr. Senator? I think he goes by Reverend Senator when he's in Washington. Um yes, they are. And that tradition uh where you would have um the pastor, the black pastor as the central figure of a community um fighting both for spiritual liberation and for earthly liberation. Well, that's uh, that's Warnock's book. That's his book. He's got a couple yep. books out. This past semester, um, David and I had our intro to ethics students read Raphael's book. Uh, Raphael Warnock writes this brilliant book, uh, "The Divided Mind of the Black Church," talking about sort sort of that idea: spiritual liberation and social liberation. That there's the prophetic public witness and the internal piety and that strong internal love ethic. Right, and Warnock, Reverend Senator Dr. Warnock, <laughs> uh, our friend at McAfee, by the way, um, argues that the, the, the mind of the black church has been divided on these questions in the sense that he's, his, his telling of the story is that enslaved people, uh, when the gospel was presented to them in the 19th century and late 18th century, um, and and there was lots of conversion. They were converted to a white evangelicalism that um, was otherworldly and pietistic and, and certainly had every self-interested reason not to raise questions about the institution of slavery itself, right? Um, but that they, some of them transmuted what they received into a liberative, well, and, and he, he would say it was liberative anyway, but some of them transmuted it into an abolitionist kind of religion. Uh, this is Harriet Tubman and um, and Frederick Douglass and later Ida B. Wells Barnett. And in other words, that the charter of faith is a charter of freedom and, and inclusion and justice. And that's what God is about. So Warnock argues that the black church has a divided mind and that some are still just doing the personal piety message while others are doing like the Ebenezer type holistic message and he wants them to do both mm -hmm. right um but this is part of but then we were asked it came up in class 
basically, well, where's the white church in all of this? And I, I sadly, I would say most white churches never did develop a full-on prophetic justice liberation-oriented message or sense of mission, um, partly because they had social power, so they didn't really need it. They didn't need to protest. They were the ones in charge of the system. Um, and also because in the midst of, for example, a system of slavery, talking about justice and exodus and liberation and so on is is not what people want to encourage. Right? So so the what I'm what I'm doing is I'm kind of in this chapter I'm entwining the long difficult history of black people in the United States. Um the history of of black Christianity which begins as um uh you know under oppression and and then uh, I think it's James Cone who says that the the only real authentic expression of Christianity in North America came uh, in black churches mm. because they were not compromised by by uh, white supremacist racism. So then you're talking. So you're talking about the history of black Christianity in the U.S. But then I'm also talking about how these churches have often been engines of the fight for, for example, in Reconstruction, the fight for voting rights. Uh, the fight for uh, civil rights, for uh, racial integration. Yeah, the pastors uh, were the community organizers. Yeah, it was community organizing. Yeah, um, and and something about the durability, the duration of that fight, the not giving up when you lose and you keep after it, and in the awareness of of democracy is struggle. Democracy is a constant fight, and you lose maybe more than you win. Another thing that African-Americans can teach us is they could say, and do say, every time we make any kind of progress, white people come back at us hard. Backlash is real. Um, I think it's fair to say that the vision of a kind of a white supremacist quasi-democracy bathed in some kind of version of Christianity. That's what the Confederate States of America had in uh, 1861. Mm -hmm. um, and that vision has never died. And the main version of both Christianity and politics that has resisted that vision is the black church, the pro-democratic, resistant, abolitionist, sometimes called the social gospel black tradition. It's all those voices who most white people have not read and need to. It, it is. It's Frederick Douglass and um, Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin and Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and um, so many others. The, the heroes of democracy are people who have had to fight the hardest for it. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like all of our listeners to um, to think about this this tradition, and I, I write this towards the end of this chapter. The black democratic tradition teaches us much that all Christian Democrats, little d, should support. The ongoing battle for an inclusive democracy, the equal dignity and worth of all persons, 
the moral and legal right of everyone in society to political participation, the protection of human rights, with special focus on the mistreated, marginalized, and minoritized, the struggle for advances in economic democracy, and the vigorous protection and improvement of democratic norms and democratic institutions. We learn from the Black democratic tradition that if one wants democracy, this requires a never-ending devotion to the actual building of a free and open democratic society. That's a line from Randall Jokes. It's yeah. a good line. A never-ending devotion to the actual building of a free and open democratic society. You're either, it's entropy or atropy. We're either aperture or entropy. It's either dissipating or it's widening in its welcome. Yes, that's right. Um, and I, I make that kind of argument throughout the book. A democracy is a living thing. It's organic. It it's can't heading, stay the same. Right. It's heading in one direction or another, like every living thing. Right. And, um, and so uh, we need to find hope, inspiration, and partners among those who have never given up on widening this democracy so that it belongs to everybody on equal terms. That's a good call to action. Thank you, David, and thank you, Winston. And thank you, dear listener. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are glad to have you along on this. I'm having fun. I don't know if you can tell. I, David and I are enjoying this, and we hope you are too. Um, and I, I've been finding a lot of benefit in revisiting the concepts in a because the book is so well organized it's nice to circle back around on these subjects in a way that's a little looser helps me really lock it into my way of thinking so thank you for coming along on this journey and we will see you next time uh, as we continue this conversation specifically around the church and democracy in the united states so something to look forward to and we'll see you next time